Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are not in the sexiest part of the Parsha. Uh, the sexy part is Lech Lecha, is the beginning where Abraham is called and he journeys out. That is the first triennial reading because it's the beginning of the Parsha. And the other part that's that's talked about a lot is Sarah and Hagar. The episode with Sarah and Hagar, which happens at the third triennial reading. So we are uh, in the second year cycle, which means we're in the middle of the Parsha. So this is a text we don't look at very often when we talk about Lech Lecha, when we talk about Avraham and Sarah. But it's... Uh, Bless you. It's a part of Abraham we don't usually see. So what's just happened in our story uh, at chapter 14, what's just happened is that there has been a war in the region. Lot, Abraham's nephew, was captured and taken hostage in this war. And Abraham decides with his retinue with all of his people to go out and rescue his nephew. And so five kings are involved and Abraham is victorious. So this is an, an episode where we see, uh, which we don't see very often. We, we tend to think of Abraham as old. Like as soon as we meet him, he's old and just gets older, right? So we, um, we don't tend to think of Abraham as the powerful warrior sheikh that he was. Um, and a lot of those tales obviously have fallen away. We don't have a lot of those. This is one of the few that we have from the, the episodes of um, Avram's vigorous uh, role as a real leader in the region. But this is one of those places that we get a glimpse of that Avram, that he goes to war, that he's victorious, uh, and um, that he has these allies in the region. He doesn't, of course, own things in Canaan, right? He's, he's a visitor there. He has a lot of wealth. Uh, how did he get some of that wealth? How did he get so wealthy? You've heard. From the, uh, the uh, pharaoh who took Sarah. Sarah is taken into the harem of mm-hmm. Pharaoh and... Abraham has pretended to be her brother so that he can spare his own life because he's afraid they're going to kill him to take her. She's taken into Pharaoh's harem uh, and a mysterious disease falls upon the entire palace uh, and suggesting that there's been some sexual impropriety and that is that Abraham and Sarah are married. So he has take, Pharaoh has taken a married woman into his harem. He puts those two things together. That the latest thing that's happened is he has taken this woman and then this STD kind of thing um, spreads among his palace. So he puts those two together and charges Abraham with lying to him. Abraham admits the truth and says, I was trying to save my life. And so Pharaoh says, get out. Um, and take your wife with you and sends them with lots of slaves and wealth. So, like, I want it away from me. I want it off of me. I want it, like, you know, get it out of my palace. And um, so there you go, praying them to leave. So, So Abraham has a lot of wealth, which gives him a lot of power in the region. So we see um, at this uh, incident that um, that also Abraham is deeply loyal. Right? He risks his life and he risks the life of his household to go to war in order to save his nephew Lot, who has been abducted. Right? So this is this is another quality of Abraham that we see is that he's deeply, deeply loyal and protective of those who are um, in any way given into his care, his sense of responsibility. This story is reminding me that we're starting back with a cycle. I mean, we're seeing Abraham again. It's not a story that just keeps going. We, we come back and we pick up more information about that era. I was confused. I thought we finished with Abraham already. But here we are again going through another cycle with other developments in his character, the situations that surrounded him and so forth. So we keep getting the stories repeated 
with more detail. So what do you mean when you say you thought we were done with Abraham? Well, because we talked about Abraham months ago, a year ago. You know. A year ago, right. So every year we come back through the Abraham narratives, right? I just my mind into the cyclical story and what happens with each cycle, how it gets added to and developed further. Right. Which is why Torah study, we're never done. Right. Because we come back through it every year, and the text doesn't change, but we change. Right. So we approach the text um, differently every time. The text is a mirror for us, um, and so what's reflected in that mirror changes over time. So what, what it shows us changes because the, what's in the, the reflection is different. should be a stack downstairs yeah. as you leave. Oh, you know, before you go another level down, grab a yeah. Jewish journal. On your and it's available online, too. There you go. All right. So we're going to look at chapter 14. So this is immediately following this uh, war. So 14:17. When he returned from defeating Kedorla Omer and the king's with him, king of Sodom, 1417. 1417. The king of Sodom. The king of Sodom. No, he's right. No, he's right. When he returned from defeating Kedor Alo Omer. No. What? Yes. The translation is different. They reversed the sentence. I don't know the sentence. Oh, it's reversed. You're right. The sentence is reversed. Okay. Okay. So. What it says in this book is when he returned from defeating Kedorla Omer and the kings with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That's better. Okay, you got it? Which is the valley of the king. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him, saying, Blessed be Avram of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your foes into your hand. And Avram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Avram, give me the persons and take the possessions for yourself. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, I swear to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal strap of what is yours. You shall not say it is I who made Avram rich. For me, nothing but my servants have used nothing but what my servants have used up. As for the share of the men who went with me, Anar Eskol and Mamre, let them take their share. Okay. So, so he defeats Kedarla Omer, right, and the kings who were allied with him, and Avram returns. He's victorious. He's the the victor. He's the hero. Avram's the hero. When you come back from defeating five kings, what do you have with you? Spoiler. You have the spoils of war with you. So Avram has come back. He's not just like walking home. After, <laughs> like, right. he, he comes riding in with his entire victorious army. And imagine all of the, I mean, in our imagination, the horses and the, you know, what loaded with stuff, right? That, that, so it's a huge thing. This is a huge scene, you know, that he returns the victorious hero. When a victorious hero in the region comes back from a victory like that, what's got to happen? Celebration. So there's going to be a celebration. And as part of that celebration, you better have dignitaries, mm-hmm. right? You, you beat up everybody in the region and you come home. It is in the best interest of dignitaries around to be there. 
to congratulate you, right? Like you, it's just politically smart. It's what you, it's what you do. So the king of Sodom comes out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, which we're told is Emek HaMelech, the valley of the king, and King Malchi Tzedek of Shalem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. So this is very interesting. This is very interesting. So this is, this is very interesting. So out comes the king of Sodom, and we know what's going to happen with Sodom. Right? What's going to happen with Sodom? <laughs> right? It's going to get blown up. God is going to blow up Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? So we know something a little, you know, about Sodom. And here comes somebody we've never heard of and that we don't hear of again until books after, after the Torah. Right? So never in Torah again do we encounter Malkitzedek. Okay? What, what are we told about Malkitzedek? He was a Kohen of El Elyon. Okay. So let's look at yeah. Malki Zedek. All right. So the first question is, <coughs> who wrote on my board and didn't His erase? His name means king of righteousness, right? So. Is that what that means? Well, we're going to talk about it. Okay. Malkitzedek. So already we see, right, the Shoresh, Mem Lamedchaf. So whenever we see Mem Lamedchaf, we're talking about Melech. We're talking something about kingness. So we've got that, and then we've got Righteousness. Tzadi Dalit Kuf, right, which is generally something about justice. Some people, like Cantor Chaim, like to translate it as righteous. Alright, so what are our two choices here? Either this is a proper name, the guy's name is Malkitedek, or it is an appellation. That it is, he's not only a king, he is a Malkitzedek. He is a just and righteous king. Um, he is non-Israelite, right? Because there are no Israelites. There's only Avraham, right? There aren't Israelites yet. Um, and he doesn't descend from Avraham. So if he doesn't descend from Avraham, he's not an Israelite. So he's a non-Israelite king who whether, if this is his proper name, then whoever named him, Right? Even if it's not an appellation, even if this is his proper name, like, you know, Jonathan, um, clearly it says something about at least the vision of the person who named him. Right? That, that he was raised by somebody who named him, Malki said that you should try to be a righteous and just king. And if it's an appellation, then we know that you know, the people who call him that think of him as a righteous and just king. And as Bert just said, we are told that he is Kohen. Yeah? Lael Elyon. All right. So we know something about Kohen. Right? What's Kohen? He's a priest. And... What do we know about El Elyon? Well, it's literally God Most High, and we even have that in prayer. We do indeed. Still referring to you, Suffolk. We do. El Elyon. It is rare that we see this in the Bible. It's only found once again in Torah. So it's interesting that for the rabbis, this is. El Elyon, Gomel Chasadim Tobi. We hear it all the time, El Elyon, right? That's rabbinic. So it's interesting that the rabbis chose in their liturgy to use a term for God that is used twice in the Bible. Here and in uh, Psalm 78, verse 35. 
Um, it doesn't appear anywhere in the Ugaritic texts, so it doesn't come to us from Ugaritic. Um, there is a slightly similar variant uh, that is used of Baal, right? The Canaanite god Baal, who is called the Exalted One, right? From this, uh, it's a similar, it's got the Alaya part of the Elyon um, from, in speaking about Baal, uh, Elyon was once the name of a separate deity altogether, which makes sense to us, right? So Elyon, if Elyon was a god, right, then then later what happens is uh, El is attached to that god. Who's El? God. Who is El? God. In the region. The highest god. The chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. The head god of the Canaanite pantheon. The Zeus of the Canaanites is El. So it makes sense if there's Elyon, that at some point Elyon gets associated with El, and it becomes El Elyon. And then what does the Yon part mean? Hmm? What does Yon mean? Um, it seems it's, it's actually the other way around. Like when we see... When we see the um, text in the region, that's what we get. The Ayin Lamed Yud is is what we see attested to as exalted one of Baal. Right? So um, the own is is separate. Right? That that's the second half. So this is a reference to a Canaanite god? So this is a reference possibly to um, a Canaanite god, originally. So you have a bunch of folks who are, who are Canaanites who you're converting to the new Israelite religion, right? You're telling them there's one god now, right? There isn't a pantheon. There's one god. We're worshiping the one god, right? If, if you're going to have them come over to your team, you'd better give them a name for that god that's familiar, Right? So, because God has lots of names, it doesn't mean there's lots of gods. Our God has lots of names. One of them is El, and El Elyon, apparently, right? So it comes into um, Israelite um, parlance that way. Um, is the generic term for priest? Yes. Well, there. There is no there is no Hebrew talking about Christian priests. No. <laughs> so right so. So Likahain is to priestify okay. and and you know a, a Kohain is someone who who is that person, right? The, and so because we see it used here, we know it must be in some way generic. Yeah. Right? Doesn't the word L mean something in Hebrew? Okay. No? What? You mean the name of L? Just L as meaning. It, it's a pointer. It's an indirect object. Yes. If I give you a pen, I give it L, U. So it's two, but not really two. But right, we don't have an English for what L is in Hebrew. Um, it's a, it's indirect object pointing to the indirect object. It's not the indirect object itself. But in Hebrew, we use L as two. So it's L. You'd say L. No, right? It, it's complicated. Um, but we'll just say there's there's no English translation of of how L is used if we're not talking about God. Um, but often L is put at the end of names. Shmuel, Yisrael, right? It is very common in the ancient world to take names of God and have a name of a person derive from or include one of the names of God. We also see it with Yah, right? So we have Yah included in a lot of um, a lot of names. Your daughter's name, yeah. mm-hmm. Ailey, my God, answered. Ella, right? And Ella in the ancient world would have been the feminine of El. Right, so there was a goddess Ela, where there's a city where the goddess Ela in Israel was the sea goddess, and the city named after her is Elat. Right? 
Absolutely. Um, all right. So I'm just thinking if there's anything else from El Elyon that we want to talk about. The next line. Avram. All right. So, so what was I think? So he brings. Oh, and he, and who is Machi Tzedek the king of? Salem. Shlom. Okay. So already something about peace, wholeness, an echo of Yerushalayim, right? So Malchit Tzedek has all of this grooviness going on on his side, as opposed to Melech Sedom. So Malchit Tzedek comes, and he is a priest of El Elyon, and what does he do? He brings out bread and wine, right, and blesses Abraham, and what does he say to Abraham? Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who has delivered your foes into your hand. Abraham then takes a tenth of the booty and gives it to Malchitzedek. Presumably you give it to your allies, right? You divide the spoils among your allies. So he gives a tenth to... Um, the tenth later shows up as a tithe, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it always is. That same amount. Yeah. It always is. So that goes way back to here and before. That a tenth, right, mm-hmm. is obviously a hunk that mm-hmm. is a familiar um, portion, right? Um, so, he, and it's a neighboring king. You, you pay, you, you come, you conquer in the neighborhood, you win a lot, you, you pay tribute mm-hmm. to, right, the kings. Avraham, Avraham is nothing in terms of his status there other than his wealth. Right? He he he's, he doesn't own he doesn't he doesn't come from there. He comes from Or of the Chaldees, right? So he he's a visitor. He has to be very careful how he behaves here. He's just won a war. That makes kings in the region a little nervous. So it's all right. We're gonna have a little ceremony. Everybody's groovy and yay, L L Yon, and take some with you when you go right back to your um, king land. Um, all right. So, uh, and then what happens? The king of Sodom. So Machitzenet comes and he gives wine and bread and blessing right and the king of stone comes and says give me yeah. right so we have absolutely this you know juxtaposition here because we know what's going to happen later with stone so give me right the persons and take the possessions for yourself so what's he interested in slaves, slaves. slaves. <laughs> he's interested in slaves but what does Abraham say to the king of stone so he's not going to give him anything. <laughs> I know. He, he says, I says I will not take so much as... He said, Stone is saying to him, you keep my right. share of the booty. I'm just going to take the slaves. Right. And Abraham says, I'm not taking a thread or a sandal strap from you. Why? What does Abraham not want to give him? No, the power to say he was the one who saved him. He was the one who made him rich. He doesn't want to give him power. Right? Avraham is smart. He's a politician. He knows. If he keeps a portion of Sodom's booty, then later, he owes him something. He takes the Weinstein money. He doesn't want to be involved in that. If you take something eventually that bill's gonna come due right you owe me a favor now and and for we're not in modern times we're not in transactional times in terms of a modern sense but even we see it in the modern times but in the ancient world the way the way you were most powerful and most wealthy was you had the most people owing you a favor that and, and that's how politics works. That is the way you have the most power. Not just the, not just yeah. not just about how much wealth you have. Abraham's willing to sacrifice wealth because what's more important than that is power. And real power is about who owes you. And Abraham refuses to owe the king of Sodom anything. But doesn't he give him the people? 
the slaves? So he gives him. He, he yeah. gives him. He gives him what what he's what he's entitled to. Right. Money out of politics. Yeah, Get money out of politics. Yeah, right. As if, as if there would be any politics without money. But okay, we won't go there right now. Money is politics. I mean, it, money is political, like by its very nature. Okay. Uh, for me, nothing but what my servants have used, meaning what. They need, right. They need. Yeah. They, the, he's right. paying back what what his servants have eaten or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the men who went with me, who joined me and risked their lives, they should get right their fair share. All right. It's immediately after that that we get what's happening at chapter fifteen. Immediately after Abraham behaves like this having been victorious in war, that we get chapter 15. Bert? Sometime later, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision. He said, Fear not, Avram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Avram said, O Lord God, what can you give me, seeing that I shall die childless, and the one in charge of my household is Damasek Eliezer? Abraham said further, Since you have granted me no offspring, My steward will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him in reply, That one shall not be your heir. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he added, So shall your offspring be. And because he put his trust in the Lord, he reckoned it to his merit. So, you know, we... Again, we read right over this stuff, like Abraham said, and then God said, and then Abraham said, and then God said. But we're missing, think about this as, Bible is literature. Think about this as literature. Right after this incident of the, the powerful, returning, mighty Abraham, who then sacrifices, right, his, you know, he's not going to take any more wealth than, than is duly his. He, he behaves justly. He behaves righteously, right? After, right after that, he has... A vision. That's what we're told. Machazet. He has a machazet, a vision. And in that vision, it's God who speaks to him and says, Al tira Avram, don't be afraid. Anochi magen lecha. I am your magen. I am your shield. Scharecha harbe Your reward will be very great. Why am I saying it comes right on the heels of what just happened? Why do I care about that? Well, it's like a reward for his righteousness. God says, you know, you're always the long-suffering, trusting Avram, doing what's good, (laughs) rescuing Lot, you know, risking your life, refusing extra booty. Like, you're always, you know, don't worry. Your reward is is coming. Your reward is going to be huge, Avram. But Avram says to God, and this is the first time, for me it's very poignant, it's the first time we see Avram doing anything other than exactly what God says. And Avram says, Adonai Elohim, what can you give me? You've just talked about a reward. That my reward's going to be huge. What can you possibly give me, seeing that I will die childless? So just we just sit with that for a minute. Avram's like master of the universe. Yes, you could give me anything, and what will any of it matter? What will it matter? I'm going to die childless. I mean, you're saying that to God. I mean, that's got to be pretty intense, right? He's got to be feeling this pretty intensely. And the one in charge of my household is Damasek Eliezer, not my son. It's the servant, Eliezer. And Avram goes on, Since you have granted me no offspring, my steward will be my heir. Right? So Avram says, I now have to take an action. I now have to make formally Damasek Eliezer my heir. He has to adopt him. Right, and we've talked about this with the Sarah and Hagar material. We've talked about this before. In the ancient world, if you did not have an heir, you adopted someone else to be your heir. What? It wasn't just so they can inherit. That's well, goody for them. That's 
why do I need to worry so much about an heir for them to inherit? What's the big deal about an heir? Not just money. So land is going to become very important. And there were a whole bunch of feudal rights. There's Who's going to say Kaddish for me? Who's obligated to say Kaddish for me? Who's obligated to support a Torah study in my memory when I'm gone? Who's going to donate a wing of a hospital and call it Avram wing? <laughs> right? That, it's much more than who's going to inherit my money. It's, it's all that I've built. It goes away in terms of me once I die unless I have an heir. Who's going to Right? Who's going to do something with that, right? To honor and legacy. And he's broken hearted that that legacy is going to be Damasek Eliezer. It's not what he wants, it's not what he's dreamed of. He has no child. And God is saying, Your reward is going to be huge. You can even read it tongue and, you know, like cheeky if you want. That's usually more Moses. But, right? But it's just kind of like, Oh, yeah, my reward's going to be so great. And I'm dying childless. Like, that's what, what, listen to yourself, God. <laughs> right? Um, but I choose to read it a little more poignantly. Um, um, I was thinking, is this the first time that we hear a wrong thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and maybe because of that, it influences how I read it, right? That he doesn't usually fetch, right? And, and to me, it's just so, it's so plaintive. You know, at this moment of promise that God is, in this vision that God gives him, he answers with this, this incredible, I think, sadness that I'm, I'm winding up with, I'm going to have to take this guy as my heir tomorrow when I wake up from this vision, right? Like, it's clear to me that's what's got to happen. And look at the custom of when a son marries out or when a son leaves Judaism, of same funeral rites and mm-hmm. pretending that it doesn't exist. I mean, it's the same thing of denying the legacy and, and punishing the child for doing that. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say something? Well, um, this may be the first time that I've run this section, but when a few verses later God tells him about the descendants, God's done that before. A little bit earlier in this parsha, um, mm-hmm. God God already promised Abraham that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth. So he's already talked about descendants, and there's a note in writing the parsha that Ramban said that it's because of Abraham's righteousness that he's kind of still concerned. Like, is it because of something that he did during the war? Reassure him. So for me, that's why this is so poignant. Is God has promised him offspring. So when God says your reward's gonna be very great, Avram gently reminds God I'm dying without an heir, I'm dying childless. What can you possibly you promised? You know, Moshe would have said, uh, you promised, and what will the Egyptians say if you don't give me a son after you promised, right? So, but, but Abraham is like much gentler and subtler, you know, about it, but, but you promised, and I'm dying without an heir. So the word of God comes to him in reply, that one shall not be your heir, meaning don't do it. Don't go through with it. Don't sign those papers. Hold off. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. God takes him outside and says, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And added, so shall your offspring be. And because he put his trust in God, when we don't know how to deal with this sentence, we have no idea exactly what that means. Um, Because we don't know we don't know what is being called tzedakah here, right? Um, we don't know. Is it the vision that it's a righteous vision? Tzedakah. 
So it's feminine. So it's referring to something feminine. It's uh, righteousness, justice. Um, so it's it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting Hebrew tangle here. Like what exactly Abraham is referring to in terms of he saw because of his trust in God, he saw it, she, feminine it, he saw her as staka. We don't know. I'll leave it to you to. To decide. Okay. Because of his faith in God, he sees Sarah as well, just. She, she's the vehicle through which he will have it. So, Sdaka. Well, she's the one who says, My husband's old, and what am I. Are mm-hmm. you kidding me? She's the one that laughs. Yeah, but she's, she's the vehicle for the heir. Okay, so for Judith, it's Sarah. Well, not so, Sarah. <laughs> so we can, you know, we can figure out what's, what it is that we think it means, right? For to me, the vision makes the most sense, right? That it's the vision that he sees as okay. It's 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 going to be true, right? It's going to be accurate because it is. Oh, that word is. Why is it? Because you share when you get back. You share yeah, with the kings so of the region. Because that doesn't rely on faith in God. It says because of his faith in God, after what God has just assured him that you're going to have a son, because of his faith in God, he saw it as just, as good, as righteous. As, you're right, so it's his act of, gener- his act of righteousness earlier was the political thing to do. So, um, all right. So then he says to him, meaning God says to Avram, I've lost my place in the Hebrew. I'm the one who took you from Ur of the Chaldeans. To bring you to this land, to give it to you as an inheritance. Vayomer Adonai Elohim. So now Avram is talking again to God. Adonai Elohim. Bema adeki ereshena. How will I know that I'm going to inherit the land? So we have two things going on here. We have a vision in which God tells Avraham he's going to have a son of his own body. And so don't adopt your... Um, your servant, Elias, Damasek Eliezer. And we have now a promise of land as Avram's inheritance. So God says, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young bird. So Avram brought all of these. He brought them all. And Avram seems to have some kind of clue about what's going on. Because what does Avram do? So what does that what does that mean? That's part of the deal. So, but Avram's not been told that. Avram wasn't told bring the animals because we're going to make a deal. Avram is told bring these animals. Right? Avram knows something that we don't have in the text because Avram cuts them in half. You never do that unless you're cutting a covenant. So. So obviously, Avram has some idea that something is happening here that involves a deal, that involves uh, a cutting of a covenant. You may have somewhere else where you cut an animal in two and walk through. Correct. In between yeah. the That's pieces. what's always done. That's what's always done. You cut the animal in half, and both parties walk through the, blood. the blood. pieces. Yeah. It's not just blood. They, you walk through the carcass, yeah. right? And I read somewhere, which I love it that you all... <laughs> would now look at this article and go, what? <laughs> so it was from a Christian source that said that that when you cut a covenant, you walk through the pieces so it's an act of magic so that they should come back together yeah. and be whole. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? 
All right, so I'm like, my class knows better than this. They would know if they read that, they'd be like, what? You, you have the bloody carcass on each side. You Each party path of the deal passes through so that you take upon yourself. So may this happen to me if and me, Amy's part of the deal. Here comes the other person part of the deal. right? May it happen to me or me if either one of us breaks this covenant. When we last discussed it, we talked about that being a possible origin of cut a deal. It is, for sure. Absolutely. For sure. Yes. Sacrifice is different. That's something completely different. Sacrifice is completely other. Cutting a covenant is a ritual that seals a deal between two people. In this case, it's going to be God. And we're going to get to how this is different. But and, and walking through those pieces obligates both parties to keep up the covenant or may this happen to the one, the one of us who breaks it. Usually in the ancient Near East, it was a human pact. It, we're getting there. Oh my God. So usually a covenant is between two people. We have reconstructed that in our text to be something a little different in the ancient world. And this is a radical move in the ancient world. This is reconstructing what was commonly understood to be obligating two parties to a deal. We're going to go there in a second. Why didn't they cut the bird? I don't know. We think that, that they would have faced each other, but I don't know. Maybe because they're little. <laughs> like, you know, like doesn't, it doesn't have quite the impact right? to like cut up a cut up a dove and like walk between them. You know, like, oh, yes, George. Abraham seems to distrust God. He says, "How do I know it's going to happen?" So it could be distrust. How else might, might we read it? Wanting reassurance. Ne- really needing reassurance. You've said this before. I get it. Like, but I, I need, I need, I need you. I need something else. Mommy, do you love me? Yes, mm-hmm. I love you. Mm-hmm. Does that mean my child doubts me? Mm-hmm. Right? Or, or is it, I need I need something. I need more. more. I'm, I need right now. So either way, we can read it either way. But clearly, he's afraid. He's clearly afraid that it's not going to happen. Well, and God does not seem angry at all about Abraham needing reassurance. If you think about it, God is very patient with God's person, whoever it is at the time. God tends to be very patient, even when doubted. God seems to understand that human beings have a hard time getting past what seems likely, right? Um, Moshe, God is very patient with Moshe. When Moshe says, see that you go in the lead or else don't make us leave, God's like... I'm going to go in the lead. It's going to be okay. Right, Lynn? But you haven't said who you're going to send with us. There's going to be an angel. Right? God is very patient um, with this, these human beings who like are just like, wait, what? Like, how do I know? How do I know? This is just like, uh, put it in writing. Let's put it, <laughs> put it in, in writing. writing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Which is basically was the way they But it's funny because Avram doesn't ask for what, the, the way they did it, but seems to get it that that's what's going to happen. I, I, I'm, I'm put it he, in God says, go get a pen. <laughs> right? And so Moshe gets a pen. And like, right? So Moshe seems to think that God is answering exactly that. Like, how do you want reassurance? Well, the way people usually do that is to cut a covenant. All right. So usually it's between two people. You both obligate yourselves by walking through the bloody pieces. <laughs> Should either one of us break this? May this... Horrible ickiness happened to us. All right, so let's pay attention to what's different here. Our reconstruction of that ancient Near Eastern ritual. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avram. Verse 12, right? So a deep sleep falls on Avram and a great dark dread descended upon him, says my English, which... You know, the Hebrew is a lot more uh, enigmatic and 
and elegant. And God said, so now we've had a vision and now we're getting something else. Now we're getting a heavy, deep sleep, darkness, Ama, an awesome, big, right? You know, so, so more like a, one might be a morning thing. One might be an evening thing. We don't know, but there are two different theophanies that are happening. He had a theophany that was a vision. He's having a theophany now that is involving a sleepy, dark something. And what does he hear as part of this experience? He hears, know well that your offspring shall be strangers in a land not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation they shall serve, and in the end, they shall go free with great wealth. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a ripe old age, and they shall return here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. <coughs> so he's told that right, his descendants are going to have to be oppressed. Um, working out the fourth generation, believe me, there is so much rabbinic <laughs> literature written on this, I can't even begin to recap it for you. How do you make that work? Fourth generation from when? Is it from Joseph? Is it from the Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph? Whatever. It's a chunk of time. A big chunk of time, right? That they're going to be suffering, but they're going to eventually go forth. You're going to be fine. You're going to die a wealthy, happy old man. All right. When the sun set and it was very dark, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between those pieces. On that day, Adonai made a covenant with Avram saying, to your offspring, I assigned this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, <laughs> and the Jebusites. What just happened? Mm -mm. God promised the promised land. Their land. God promises that these people's land is going to be your land for an inheritance. Talk to me about the reconstruction of this covenanting ceremony. What's happened here? Well, some, something of God has walked through between the pieces. Aha. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. How's that interesting? Because there's pregnancy involved. Well, there's a bit of magic okay. there. So, a smoking oven and a torch <laughs> just kind of like float out in between the, the pieces so, of the pieces of the animals, right? Yes. So this could be the vision that this is what Avram sees. Mm -hmm. Is it actually there? I don't know. Is it, is it, a, is it a foreshadowing of the pillar of fire? A foreshadowing of the pillar of fire yes. that's going to lead them? Yeah, what is... Hmm? And of Sinai. And of Sinai, the fire, right? Smoke of the smoke of Sinai. But what's interesting about how they've re how this has reconstructed the ritual? God is the only one walking through. Avram doesn't walk through the pieces. Who's the only one obligated by this covenant? God. God is the only one now obligated to what has been said. That this land will be yours for an inheritance. This is like God saying, no to self. This is the first time God is obligated to a human being specifically. The first time in Torah. It is not Avraham who walks through the pieces. Only God. God has chosen to limit God's self what are the consequences? Like, you have to wonder. He, God's passing through the pieces. We pass through the pieces to say, may this happen to me if I break the deal. Well, what is God? When, when God passes through those pieces, what, what is God saying, may what happen to me? Should I pass through the, what, death? May Dismemberment? I, <laughs> right. well, may, I lose, may I lose the justification to be looked up to and reverence? Well, but it's interesting that 
that it's walking through pieces of a carcass that somehow, fire. right? Light and fire are walking through, too. So mm-hmm. those would be put out if he doesn't keep it. God forbid. Right. <laughs> I, I, I think this is fascinating that this is the image chosen by which God obligates God's self to Avram. That it's passing through the pieces. It's like, that's intense. It says here, the Lord made the covenant. It doesn't say the Lord and, it doesn't say God and Abraham. Because Abraham's not a party to it. It's just God who makes a covenant, who makes a promise to Avram and then implicates God's self by passing through the pieces. But isn't he back in the other, Showing him countless books are coming from the stars. That's all. Of, uh, that's all of us, right? That's the. Yes. He's making a covenant with the entire. No. People. No. 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 Well, it's, it, it's, it's a possibility of counting. It's a promise to Avram that we will inherit. Right. Sinai is a covenant with everybody. This is a promise to Avram, a particular human being, that your offspring will inherit this land. It's not a promise to us. This is a promise to Avram. We are implicated in it because we get the land, presumably. Um, and that's only been argued about for 2,000 years. But might all, all this happen while he's in his dark sleep? Yes, so, of course. Yeah, right. So okay, so he fell into the sleep, and and in his sleep, in his dream, God is making the covenant with him, right? Yes. God's the only one making the covenant. Yes. Wait, hold on, just one page. Okay. <laughs> so, um, okay. But I just had to clarify that he was was not before that. This was after he's yes. sleep in his dark dread. So the question I have is. What what is dreadful about this? It's just a dark dread. So it's like, this, like good it's closer to me to stuff that happens in in a graveyard in the middle of the night. A twig snaps, okay. right? It, there's okay. nothing bad about a twig snapping. Right. It's that it's dark. Something eerie's going on. Your senses are heightened. It's a little freaky. Okay. It's a little okay. out of the normal okay. and. <clears throat> And then you're that. feeling kind of weird, and you know, so. I get that. It, I couldn't figure out what was bad about it. Yeah. Aren't we considered descendants of Abraham? Yeah. Every child is descendants of The Arab people. Aren't, aren't the stars eternity forever? Yes. Mm. It, it's, it's not, not a finite number of people. It's, no. No. It's just lots. Really Count the stars is there's just lots. Yeah. Like, is the translation for stone really stone? Yes. So what could this mean as he passes by, right? <laughs> 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 you don't eat. You don't eat, you don't eat the covenant meat. God forbid. You don't eat that. You know. It's like it's like when you d- take the blood out at Seder with your pinky. You don't lick it. Those are the plagues. Like what? You don't eat the covenant carcass. Oh my god. Yeah. Oops. Yes. So, proper understanding of a contract is there are two parties that bring. Unless you're in the ancient world and you are a king, who is granting to people the right to land. So this is modeled on a one-party contract where I obligate myself to make sure I protect you and your people on this land because it's I've given it to you. And I get nothing in return. I get nothing in return except risk. Right? right? I, but didn't we right. see this within the last month? We had some other conversation where I feel like you said similarly that I think it was like with Moses that God sort of said the same kind of thing where he made, we didn't call it a covenant, but there was some kind of incident where he too took on something and did not ask for something in return. I don't know if it was God was leading. I can't remember now what the reference was. So there is precedent in the ancient world for having a one-sided contract. It's interesting to me 
that they chose the more common contractual two-party ritual to seal that deal to a one-party contract. All right, 132. Oh, because the other thing we need to address is why does God need to be talking about Egypt right here? Why is God talking about bondage? Why not just say that? If Avram's going to live a happy, long life and go sleep with his ancestors, why does God need to bring something so upsetting up? It must have already happened when it was written. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the authors? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, sure for sure. But why, why, do the author, why does the author have God address this issue of slavery to Avram when talking about giving the land to his descendants? To prove that he's capable of great works. So God is going to say to Avram, this terrible thing's going to happen, but I'm going to intervene. And I'm going to save them. So it's really just about God showing Avram what God can really do if God wants to. It's for him to keep his faith and know that it's going to go. But Avram's going to die before any of this happens. Why does God disturb him with this? Why? He's concerned about the future and if it so skip it. Skip it. If, you're, if Avram's concerned about the future, all God has to say is, your people are going to be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. And shut up. Stop talking. Why does God keep talking? It must be because there is no way for that to happen other than slavery in Egypt first. There is no way for the inheritance of the land and us being like the stars of the heaven or the sands of the sea, one is directly dependent on the other. Redemption from slavery is the prerequisite for inheriting the land. Look at Art Green. I don't want to go back there. We can't if we have time. 132. This is Arthur Green. This is Arthur Green from a book called Radical Judaism. (sighs) To understand Judaism and the Jewish mindset, one needs to understand that our most basic statement of faith involves this collective experience of liberation from bondage. Drop down to the next highlight. In this way... Judaism differs from both Christianity and Islam, where the most essential faith message is directed to the individual. Jewish faith is about belonging to this liberated community of former slaves. Being Israel means identifying fully with that experience as though it had just happened yesterday. Rabbi Art Green is picking up on, right, it directly ties, I think, to this text. He doesn't tie it to that, but but that's why. Because you won't be the people of Israel living in this land and doing all that other than by having a shared experience of liberation from slavery as a group of former slaves. Just being the offspring of Abraham doesn't do it, doesn't cut it. We're going to be the offspring of Abraham, yes, and have gone through a formative experience that, that turns us into the people Israel who have then the right to settle that land. Somebody want to answer, Audrey? Why must one be I think it turns us into a community, this shared experience, uh, this horrible experience, and then the redemption of these same people. That's a shared experience, too. It makes us into a people. Makes us into a people? What else does it do? Suffering brings enlightenment. Hmm? Everyone's mumbling. Speak up. What does it do? It bonds us. What else? Makes us aware of the suffering of other peoples who are enslaved and oppressed. Therefore, what will we become as a people, supposedly? Enlightened. Liberators. Enlightened. 
Remember that you were slaves. Remember that you were slaves. You can't ever otherize people and say, if they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, things would be better for them. You can't ever say that. Oh, it's because of them, because of their race, because of their gender. Because You were slaves. You. You're no different from them. And you didn't earn anything about your status as redeemed. You didn't earn one step out of Egypt. Well, maybe you earned it by taking those steps out of Egypt. But you didn't earn anything about redemption, right? The same way any other people doesn't need to earn anything about their oppression and their slavery being ended. Apparently, we need to learn this over and over again. Therefore, we eat the story every year. We eat Maror. And we have the Southern Poverty Law Center. And we have the Southern Poverty Law Center. (laughs) Um, But this is why we eat Maror and and drink tears. Because we have to viscerally remember. Because we tend to forget. Mapitom, I would argue, Rita Ephros, that that the Jewish people have traditionally been far more empathetic, sympathetic, ready to work on behalf of the freedoms of other peoples. I would argue it has worked for us as a people to stay. Oh, well, that you need to be clear. Okay, so that's a whole other story. <laughs> right, because I'm like, are you kidding? Like, we're right. I'm like, we've done a great job. No, I'm not talking about general Jewish attitude towards all this, but I'm thinking of Israel and all that. Okay. Okay. All right. So that it can always happen again. I was always told, watch out, because it's going to happen again. And it keeps happening I do not think that's part at all of of this in terms of why it's here. So that it's a warning it's going to happen again. It's it's Dafka the opposite. You, I, I will end it. I will end your slavery. I will take you out and you will be a free people in this land. That's the promise. There's, this is not a warning it's going to happen again. So it's a reminder because you were talking about no, but you have to have gone through festivals and the Passover is slavery, redemption, this experience of redemption. Revelation. You have to you have to be free before you can experience revelation. You can't accept the contract at Sinai unless you're free. So you have to have gone through redemption from slavery before you can have revelation, but this is more fundamental. This is saying you have to have gone through redemption to be the Jewish people. It seems that Torah is saying it is a fundamental aspect of who we... Yes, it's already happened. That is a fundamental experience that makes you who you are in this land. It's not, oh, and that happened too. Right? It is your experience of being a redeemed people that will define Israel in the land of Israel. It's it's interesting that in in the Haggadah, there is not a reference to this discussion way back when that uh, hey you were told you know you were, you were going to be this and this was going to bring you a people um, it, it's almost like I want to take this and pile this with my I gotta put it away from good the good that'd be a great discussion right to ask people at the Seder table is it a was it a prerequisite and if so how right is it a prerequisite that we were slaves in Egypt and on a smaller scale yet, I've always felt we learn more from the difficulties in life than we do from the joys. That's where our lessons come from. Mm-hmm. And it certainly starts here. Mm-hmm. For us, for sure. That we are we are people who certainly get that. Look at page 134 to close. <laughs> down to the second paragraph, a little bit like four lines down. I like to think of it as a Judaism faithful to the journeys of Abraham Avinu, our father Abraham, who is the original figure of religious quest in our tradition. Abraham did not live his religious life out of faithfulness or loyalty to tradition. 
He was anything but a nice Jewish boy making his parents proud. On the contrary, he models a radical break with all that came before him. He is a seeker and a no-holds-bar experimentalist, daring to challenge each stage of his own religious development. Skip another sentence. The biblical text portrays God's call to him as unearned and spontaneous, almost as arbitrary, one might say, as God's rejection of Cain's offering. But later tradition sees it quite differently. Abraham is the paradigmatic seeker in Judaism. Philo, the Midrash, the philosophers, and the Hasidic masters all depict him as engaged in a journey of discovery, one in which God answers him rather than initiating the dialogue. Abraham is unique among humans because of his courage and defiance. It is these qualities that attract God to him as one with whom to covenant. The term Ivri, Hebrew, is first used to describe Abraham. And it will be essential to the Abrahamic legacy. Wait, did we skip something? No, where's the ever? Where's the ever business? Where's ever? So Ivri, I don't, I don't know why I don't see it, but, but he, Art Green says that, what does it mean, Ivri? It means Abraham is standing here and everyone is ever across from him. That he stands alone against all of the people who around him, all the people who came before him, all the generations, all the traditions, all the teachings, everything around him. He stands ever. He stands, that's why he's Ivri. He stands over and against all of that. So, you know, just, just a, a reminder that that's, that's our founder. The, the guy who was willing to be an upstander and stand up for what he believed to be the righteous, just way forward. He didn't need to track. Oh, he didn't need to trash anybody else. Malchitzedek is a kohen of El Elyon. We are not a tradition that says there's nobody else in the world who's righteous. It's it's this is our path forward. Everybody has theirs. May we have and remember and draw on and cultivate the strength of Abraham Avinu and Sarai Imenu to say it like we see it to call it as we see it, to find our understanding of truth and righteousness and justice and be willing to speak it out loud, no matter what everyone around us says. No matter that they say you're crazy, you're nuts, who do you think you are? Who are you not to be who you are? What right do you have not to be your full, empowered, unique, fabulous self? Let us trust that that kind of sacred self-awareness and sacred selfishness and sacred um, ability to stand for how we see it in terms of justice and goodness and righteousness and healing and all those things. May we have the courage of our forefather and our foremother uh, to live into that as best we possibly can. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.